today we are finishing up our series, Arrival, which has been our Christmas series. And so week one, we talked about the arrival of the light. Week two, we talked about the arrival of the sun or the gift. And then on Christmas Eve, we talked about the arrival of the sun. I want to say thank you to all of our team members who served so much on Christmas Eve. Three very full services. We were able to serve over 550 people on Christmas Eve, which is incredible for us to have that opportunity to do so. And none of that's possible without team members who gave so much on that day. And so here we are, the arrival of the light, the gift, the sun. But today I actually want to move forward 30-some years in the life of Jesus and talk about the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word arrival almost doesn't fit with Jesus or the Holy Spirit because eternal beings don't arrive. They've always existed. But There are special times in history in which the Godhead has, quote-unquote, arrived on planet Earth. And, of course, Jesus arrived as a baby in Bethlehem, although he's an eternal being. And, And in a way, the Holy Spirit arrives in a very special way after Jesus finishes his work. And this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 16, and as, as Jesus draws near towards the end of his time on earth, and he knows that he's just about finished the work that the Father has given him to do, he begins to shift his message, and one of the main focuses of Jesus' message towards the end of his life is the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus thought that it was important to teach his disciples and you and I about the Holy Spirit in his final words to us, then we must pay attention to what he has to say. So let's look at John chapter 16, uh, verses 5 through 7. It simply says this, Jesus is speaking to them. He's telling them that he's going to leave, and they're very concerned, of course, that he's going to leave. He says, now I am going to him who sent me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to the Father, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. Verse 7, but I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. He's saying, it's better for you that I go than I stay. Unless I go away, the counselor, who we'll see is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing I want to make sure that we know as a church family about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is God and the Holy Spirit is a person. So the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a force that we wield. He's not a mystery to solve. He's not a code to crack. The Holy Spirit is not like the force from Star Wars. It's an energy that you try to tap into. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling that you spend your life chasing. The Holy Spirit is not even a power that you get your hands on. The Holy Spirit is a person who gets his hands on you. The Holy Spirit is a person, and as a person, the Holy Spirit has intellect, will, and emotions. The Bible attributes personal behavior to the Holy Spirit. Here's some of the things that the Bible says the Holy Spirit does. He teaches, he testifies, he convicts, he intercedes, he guides us, he reveals things to us. These are the behaviors of a person. He is treated and responded to as a person throughout Scripture. The Holy Spirit can be tested. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, resisted, insulted, and blasphemed against. The Holy Spirit is a person. And in this passage, in this translation, Jesus says that the counselor is coming to you. And there's a few different ways that the, 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 this word can be translated. I want to talk about this. In some translations, it says that he's the comforter. 
And it's a good word because the Holy Spirit does comfort us in our sorrows, in our weaknesses, in our struggles. But the, the word comforter, I just kind of think sometimes of someone who just kind of like pats you on your knee when you get a boo-boo, like it's okay, it's okay. But he's more than that. Some, some translations say that he's a counselor. Maybe we think of someone who gives us good advice. And while the Holy Spirit can do that, he's also more than that. Other translations say that the Holy Spirit is our advocate. An advocate is like a lawyer, someone who speaks up for us on our behalf. And of course, he does that as well. But really, one of my favorite ways of understanding the Holy Spirit, I think one of the most helpful words to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what he does is that the Holy Spirit is our helper. He's our helper. Sometimes when you think of a helper, you might think of like a lesser skilled sidekick. Like I remember when, when, when my girls were much younger and Aaron would be baking uh, in the kitchen and they would want to help mom. Come on, parents, you know what it's like, right? When your kids want to help you do something and the helper actually slows down the whole thing and makes it twice as messy to clean up afterwards. But of course, the Holy Spirit is not that sort of lesser skilled sidekick like the little minions running around grew. The Holy Spirit is not like that at all. In fact, I was thinking, how is the Holy Spirit our, our helper? And this past Christmas, um, my nine-year-old daughter, Maddie, she got this big kit of Legos um, and, and she wanted to put them together. Now, if you don't know Maddie, Maddie has cerebral palsy, and so she has one really good hand, but her other hand doesn't really work in the same way, and so Legos is very uh, fun for her, but difficult for her to do on her own, but thank God she has two big sisters, right? And so she asked Lilia and Caroline, will you help me put my Legos together? And then she sat there, and they basically did the work and tried to use, tried to get her to help as much as she could, but they were helping her, but really what they were doing is they were helping her do something she couldn't have possibly done on her own. That's how the Holy Spirit is our helper. He helps you and me do things we couldn't possibly do on our own. He helps us do things, honestly, we wouldn't even, we wouldn't even want to do on our own. This is how he's our helper. And Jesus in verse seven, you know, Jesus said a lot of weird things in the gospels, a lot of shocking things, a lot of surprising things. But I think verse 7 of John 16 is one of the most surprising things, certainly to the ears of the disciples that Jesus ever said. He said to them, listen, it's better for you if I leave. The disciples could not have imagined that to be true in any way. What could be better than have the Son of God walking with you and getting to see him do these miracles and healings and teachings and putting the Pharisees in their place and, and feeding the crowds? What could, and yet Jesus, he's not using hyperbole here. He's saying, I'm telling you the truth. This is like, truly, truly, I say to you, it's better for you if I leave. How could that be possible? Well, I have a few thoughts on that. Jesus, the Son of God, came, as we've talked about this month, as a man, and he limited himself by time and space. But the Holy Spirit is not limited by time and space. The same Holy Spirit that's at work in our services this morning is at work all over the world right now doing and accomplishing God's plans. Jesus was God's presence among all of us, but the Holy Spirit is God's presence within each of us. In that way, the Spirit is better because the Spirit within us is better because he goes everywhere we go. Jesus mostly talked in parables and could only hint in some ways at what his purpose was, but the Holy Spirit can clearly reveal to us who Jesus is and what he came to do 
And Jesus, our first advocate, speaks to God on our behalf, but the Holy Spirit, our second advocate, he speaks to us on our behalf. He's that voice speaking to us and helping us. So he's our helper. And what I want us to see together this morning is that there's three specific ways that he helps us. And actually, what I'm gonna share with you this morning is, is the outline for the second half of the book that Becca mentioned, The Word and the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit helps us know, grow, and go, okay? He helps us know, grow, and go. First, he helps us know. It's funny, when you become a parent, you, you find yourself on the other side of the same conversation you had 20 or 30 years ago. And I, almost every week we have this conversation in my house with one of my teenage daughters. They'll tell me something that's going on in school, something that they're learning in math or science or history, and then this question follows it up. Why do we have to know this? How is this going to affect me for the rest of my life? Why is this equation going to help me in this area? I'm not going to be a mathematician. I'm not going to science. Why? And I, <clears throat> I remember feeling the same way. Why do I have to know this? How, and, I, and I honestly can't say to them, oh, you'll need it later. Because I haven't really needed a lot of it later. Um, although I do understand that there's a lot of value just in learning how to learn, right? And, and I think what... what ultimately we're all saying is in a world where there's an infinite amount of things to know, why do they get to decide the priority of what we should know? And the Holy Spirit is really interested in making sure that we know the right things. And the two most important things that any human being can ever know is that we need a Savior and that his name is Jesus. And that is the Holy Spirit's primary work on planet Earth today. He is whispering, yelling, and shouting into our hearts in every single way that he can. You need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit is involved in our work of salvation. Listen, we owe our salvation just as truly to the Spirit as we do to the Son and to the Father. It's the Godhead at work because it's the Holy Spirit that pursues us in our lostness. It's the Holy Spirit that shines the light into our darkness. R.A. Torrey, the great theologian, said this. He said, eternal and infinite Holy Spirit, I thank you for your great love that, you, that led you to come into this world of sin and darkness and to seek me out. And to follow me so patiently. How many of you can look back and see the ways in which the Holy Spirit has followed you so patiently until you brought me to see my utter ruin and need of a Savior and revealed to me my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as just the Savior who I need? See, if you've realized your need for Jesus, it's because of the Holy Spirit. If you've seen the beauty of Christ, it's because of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to know these things. See, so the Father, when we think of salvation, the Father looked down on us in our ruin and provided a plan by sending his Son. Jesus, obedient and submissive to the Father, came to earth and took my place, lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died, became my sin upon a cross, and then conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. But the Holy Spirit, sent by the Son, seeks me out in my sin and follows after me and shows me Jesus and brings my heart to life and seals me and secures me for the day of redemption. This is the Holy Spirit, and this is his work. He wants us to know we need a Savior, and he wants us to know that the Savior's name is Jesus. See, here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit makes spiritually dead people alive. 
It's his greatest miracle. Salvation of a soul and regeneration of the human heart is the greatest miracle, and it's the greatest work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see this. In Titus 3, verse 4, it says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, right? That's the heart of the gospel. We've not earned it, deserved it, worked our way into it, but because of his mercy. Now, how did he save us? Look at this. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by who? By the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation that renews us and restores us and regenerates our hearts. This Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's a, listen, that's a passage to memorize. That passage is the gospel in a nutshell, and it's beautiful. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that we need a Savior and that his name is Jesus. Sometimes people have disagreements and arguments about whether or not the Holy Spirit is at work in a church or at work in a church service. And I know there's lots of things that people are looking for when they want to know if the Holy Spirit is at work. I've had lots of conversations with people about this, but I just want you to know that the most certain way you can know that the Holy Spirit is at work in a service is that there are people there who are realizing, I need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. If that's happening in a church, then the Holy Spirit is at work in his primary, most profound way. And that's our need for salvation, seeing Jesus. Nothing else matters if we don't understand that. Any spiritual revelation or understanding, any conviction, any repentance, any moment of worship and love for Jesus is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He helps us know. Secondly, he helps us grow. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that the Holy Spirit's job is to transform us into the image of Christ. I hope that on December 31st of 2023, you and I are more like Christ than we were on January 1st of 2023. And I hope on December 31st of 2024, you and I will be more like Christ than we are today. That's what it means to grow. But we can't grow on our own. We can't grow on our own strength. And this is why we need a helper. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside us to faithfully help us grow. So the Holy Spirit wants to do two primary things for us. For the unbeliever, the Holy Spirit wants to reveal Jesus to their heart. But for the believer, the Holy Spirit wants to form you more into the image of the Son. That you would live more and more like Jesus. That the life of Christ that's in you would flow through you more readily. So the Holy Spirit was not sent to make you weird. The Holy Spirit was sent to make you like Jesus. That's his job, is to make you more and more like Jesus. And there's three things that he does, I think, that helps us grow. And my dad, when he was with us, when, often when we would take communion, he would talk about the three looks. Some of you remember this, right? He would talk about looking back at the cross, look in at your own heart, and look forward to the return of Jesus. Well, actually, the way that the Holy Spirit helps us grow is the same three looks. He, he causes us to look back, He causes us to look in, and he helps us to look forward. So first, he helps us look back. John 14, Jesus, talking about the Holy Spirit, said that he will remind you of everything I said to you. So the Holy Spirit is always reminding us of Jesus' teachings, Jesus' life, Jesus' work, Jesus' word. Anytime anything Jesus has said or done comes to mind and it helps you in a situation, the Holy Spirit is at work. 
John 15, 26, Jesus, still speaking about the Holy Spirit, says, he will testify about me. So the Holy Spirit is not here to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit is here to bring our attentions to Christ. In a similar way that Jesus was submitted to the Father as the Son is to a Father, the Holy Spirit is here to show us Jesus. He causes us to look back, and he wants us, as we look back and see who Jesus is and what he's done, to remind us of what is true now because of Jesus. There's two truths that I think we need to remember or else we're going to not grow in our faith. And the first truth is this. Because of Jesus, how righteous you are. How righteous you are. Imagine, you know, you're in school and you're, you're, taking, you're, you're supposed to take a test and it's an impossibly difficult test and everybody fouls this test and nobody's ever passed this test and you come to class on that day and the teacher says, you know what, I'm just gonna give the whole, I'm gonna give you 100 on the test or you can try and take it and take the grade that you get. You can receive the 100, the perfect score, or you can go ahead and take the test and fail like everybody else is. I mean, anybody with common sense takes the 100. And yet here's what we do often in our Christian faith. Jesus says to us, I wanna give you my righteousness. My perfect performance record is yours. Put your faith and trust in me and you'll be as righteous before the Father as if you lived the life that I lived here on earth. And we say, no thanks. Nah, I'll, I'll do it myself. I'll prove my righteousness. I'll take the test. I'll, and the reason why we do it is because our hearts are naturally default to self-salvation. We want to save ourselves. We want to prove ourselves. We want to be our own God. And the reason why we sin often in our lives is because we forget how righteous we are before God. See, we sin and we stop growing when we try to make ourselves righteous in our own efforts instead of receiving the righteousness of Christ. Self-salvation efforts are in uh, opposition to the salvation that's available to Jesus. We forget how right we are in Jesus. But the second thing that we forget is how rich we are in Christ, how rich we are. Tim Keller gives a great example of this. He says, imagine a billionaire who gets into a a taxi in New York City. I know billionaires don't get in taxis, but just go with me. Imagine a billionaire gets into a taxi in New York City, and and it's a $5 tab, and he hands him a 20, and uh, the guy gives him back, and and, the guy gives him back a a five instead of a 10. He only wanted to give him a $5 tip and he gives him back too little. He gets out of the car and he looks at the dollar, he looks at the dollar bill in his hand and it's a $5 bill and he's like, oh my goodness, I, I overtipped this guy by five bucks. Like, he's not gonna <clears throat> call up the tax company. He's not gonna chase the taxi down. He's, he's certainly not gonna lose his joy over that. He's a billionaire. It's five bucks. He's too rich to lose his joy over that. And Keller's point is this. You're far too rich in Christ to lose your joy over the little things of life. You, 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 you have too many blessings from the Father to let everybody who says something that hurts your feelings or everything that doesn't go your way or, 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 or just the circumstances of life, we, we struggle with those things and we let those things control our emotions and our behavior because we forget you're a billionaire spiritually. And you didn't earn it. You inherited it. It's a gift that Jesus secured on your behalf. 
and we'll never grow. Listen, these are the two main reasons why Christians do not grow in their faith. They do not actually functionally believe that they're righteous before the Father because and only because of Jesus' work, and they do not functionally, behaviorally believe that they are rich in Christ. And they have every blessing they could ever. And you know, when we don't believe that, we try to chase the blessing everywhere else. We chase the blessing in relationships. We chase the blessing in wealth, power, success, being in control. We sin when we try to make ourselves rich with creation instead of seeing what the creator has done to make us rich. So we gotta look back and remember, because of what Jesus did, we're right and we're rich in Christ. The Holy Spirit also helps us grow by help. He helps us look in. He helps us see ourselves. Did I not bring my phone up with me? I actually saw this brilliant thread on Twitter. I know there's a lot of nonsense on Twitter. A lot of angry people on Twitter. I always say that Twitter, or now it's called X, is like it's the angriest social media people. Um, But there is this thread where he was talking about how I've said this a lot. You've probably heard me say this before. Although we all believe we're experts on ourselves, we also all do not see ourselves very well. It's like this kind of difficult thing in life where we we assume we know ourselves best, but but the reality is we do not actually see ourselves very well. He says what I've said often, which is nobody has lied to you more than, than yourself. He gives some examples of how we don't see ourselves well. And he gave 10. I just want to share with you a few of them. One he calls is, a, is a, called a confirmation bias. And here's what he says. We love information that confirms our beliefs more than we love truth. Right? It's going to be a fun year, right? <laughs> we love information that confirms our beliefs more than we love truth. Examples, political affiliations, conspiracy theories, religious dogma, investing. What he says is be willing to be wrong and update your beliefs as new evidence comes in. But we don't see this about ourselves. He talks about what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. People with low ability at a task overestimate their ability. Um, new hires overestimate their skills. Beginning investors think they know what they're doing. Uh, people will push back against any and all forms of criticism. He talked about a hindsight bias. After an event, we believe it was predictable despite not predicting it before. We assume, right? And then he talks about, uh, this one really jumped out at me, the fundamental attribution error, which is this. Listen to this. We attribute other people's successes and failures to their character and our successes and failures to external factors. No one else? We assess other people's failures and successes as a character issue and then ours as external factors that couldn't be controlled. The point of it is this. We don't see ourselves well, and that's why we need the Holy Spirit. Even this morning in our pre-service huddle, Linda Jordan, normally we take turns praying out loud, but she was led by God to say, let's just take two minutes of silent reflection. Ask the Holy Spirit, look at my heart, Holy Spirit. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. Test my anxious thoughts. This has got to be a regular prayer of the Christian life. Holy Spirit, show me what I can't see. If, the Holy Spirit, if you're not in the rhythm of asking the Holy Spirit to help you see yourself the way that you can't see yourself without the Holy Spirit, then you're not seeing yourself. Only the Holy Spirit can show you the things in your heart that he wants to work on. When you open up your Bible, and I hope that this is a regular part of your life, and it's a good time at the start of the year to use you version and get on a Bible app reading plan. But when you read the Bible, don't just read the Bible. When you go to the Bible, say, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me. Because if the Holy Spirit doesn't help us when we read this, 
It's just our wisdom. It's just our insight. So he helps us look in. And then also, he helps, so look back, look in, and then look forward. Ephesians 1 says that the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. He marks us and he preserves us. That's what a seal does. He is our, according to 2 Corinthians 1.22, he is our guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the first down payment on our future resurrection. The Holy Spirit is the deposit of the future. He is the foretaste. I mean, I, know, I hope you guys ate well this week. I think we all ate probably a little bit too well. This, I don't know how you felt coming to church this morning. I'm so glad you're here because I thought about, I was like, am I going to church this morning or what? Uh, I, I, if you're like me, you had a couple too many cookies this week and, and, uh, and a lot of snacking. But I, I'm the type of person, I walk into the kitchen, like I gotta try everything. you know. And then by the time dinner comes, I'm half full because I just been like, the, right? It's the foretaste. It's just the taste of what's to come. And the Holy Spirit is given to us just as the foretaste of what is to come. What is the moment in your life where you felt like you most experienced the goodness of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit? Think about it for a minute. Where you just tangibly, and I think we should expect this, you could tangibly sense his presence in your midst, in your heart, at work at you. Think of that moment, and here's what I want you to know. It's just a foretaste. It's just a foretaste of what's to come. When we look ahead and we see what's coming, it helps us grow. Lastly, he helps us go. Acts chapter one, I'm gonna ask Pastor Anthony to join me. Jesus, this is after the ascension, or sorry, after the resurrection and before the ascension. He says this, it says this in Acts one. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with his disciples, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, he's talking about conversion, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is talking about something that is subsequent to and separate from salvation. And then skip to verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, I want you to know that the disciples already have the Holy Spirit within them. Jesus, in the end of the Gospel of John, has already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is talking about something separate, something different here. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you or falls upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is a target that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, it, many people say this is an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him. From their sight. These are literally Jesus' last words. And the two times that Jesus talks to his disciples the most about the Holy Spirit is before the cross and before the ascension. And it's almost like this is what he's saying. Before the cross, he's saying to them, Hey, I need to get going. And since I'm going to get going, you need the Holy Spirit. That's John 14 and 16. But Acts 1 is not, I need to get going. Acts 1 is, you need to get going. And if you're going to get going, you need the Holy Spirit. And what happens in Acts 2, of course, is the day of Pentecost the outpouring of the Holy Spirit prophesied by the prophet Joel, the baptism of the Holy Spirit where, they, where the tongues of fire appear over their heads and the sound of the mighty rushing wind and they begin to proclaim the goodness of God in languages that they didn't know but the people who were there could hear and understand about the goodness of God. This baptism of the Holy Spirit, this, this gift of this heavenly prayer language, five times in the book of Acts there's people or peoples who are baptized in the Holy Spirit Three of the five times it explicitly mentions that they received this heavenly prayer language. Um, and two, the other two times it's implicit in there. It was the pattern. 
The pattern in the New Testament is that when someone was baptized in the Holy Spirit, they received this special gift from the Father where they had this heavenly prayer language that was meant to use mostly in a personal sort of way to encourage yourself to, to pray in union with the Father. And if, if that's a new thought to you, it's, it's in the Scriptures. And the Scriptures never say that we shouldn't continue to seek that and ask for that. And the, many of you have that gift. You, you, the Lord has given you that gift. I do want to say this. It, Speaking in tongues or praying in a, a heavenly language is not a dividing line between Christians that have the Holy Spirit and Christians that don't have the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the Holy Spirit and all of the Holy Spirit. You don't get junior Holy Spirit at conversion and then upgrade to super Holy Spirit at the baptism. Speaking in tongues, praying in a heavenly prayer language is not something you can learn. If somebody tries to teach you, run away. It's a gift. It's a gift. The Father gives it, right? It's not something you can learn. It's not something that you can make happen is not a sign of God's approval either. It's not a sign that you're a perfect Christian. I know a lot of Christians are speaking tongues and their lives are still a mess, right? Uh, it's, it's not a reason to feel better than others or to look down at other people. And it's certainly not a finish, the finish line, but I would encourage you if this is a, a gift that you've not received to have an open heart to receive and to say, if this is something that you have for me, God, then I'm willing to receive it. See, as much as we might wanna talk about the pattern in the New Testament, more important than the pattern is the purpose, and that's how I wanna finish. See, the pattern might have been speaking in tongues or praying in a heavenly prayer language, but the purpose was power for mission. Power for mission. Oh, what is the point of the power if there's no purpose? See, the Holy Spirit wasn't given just so we could have great moments or speak in different, you know, pray out. The Holy Spirit was given so that we might live on mission. There's a work for us to do. He wants us to go, to live on mission. So the Holy Spirit, the arrival of the Holy Spirit helps us know, helps us grow, and helps us go. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's better for you if I go away, because unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Let's pray together this morning.